Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Listen to learn about my right fit method from my guest interviews of employees, entrepreneurs, and intrapreneurs. The pretzel effect. Flexibility is the key to success. My guest today is award-winning journalist Mark A. Davis, Director of Communications for the UCLA Alumni Association, former music columnist for The Advocate, and active community volunteer. Drawing on his nearly 20 years of experience at UCLA, Mark will discuss the challenges that come with long-term employment, his strategies for coping with change, and how he has developed and transferred his skills to welcome new opportunities through organizational changes. Welcome, Mark. Tell us, where did you grow up and what did you like to do as a child? Hi, Dr. Arlene. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for having me today. It's a, My a, pleasure, Mark. I can't wait to, to discuss the pretzel effect, <laughs> um, which I coined, but and of course I love it. So uh, do go on and tell us about your childhood. Okay. I, uh, I grew up... Um, where the farms meet the suburbs outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, little area called Peach Grove, Ohio. Where was that where is that Peach Grove, Ohio? Whereabouts would that be in relation to a major city? It's uh it's about fifteen miles outside of outside of uh Cincinnati toward the Indiana border. Okay. There were uh, we were the uh, I think the last suburban street in the middle of cornfields. So it was picturesque. It was. There were, you know, I, I, when I grew up, I always uh, our houses two two houses we lived in were always uh, had a cow pasture in the back with lots of woods and creeks and uh, so I spent a lot of time off playing in the woods, um, a lot of uh, imaginary games. You know, there was always a storyline going through my head when I was off. Now, did that start because your parents read to you? How do you think that started, a storyline running through your head? You know, I, it, my mother always, always did read to us. Even when we, were, when we were small, I remember her reading to us um, Huck Finn and uh, Robin Hood, uh, books that, that probably were even beyond, beyond us. 
beyond our maturity level, but she read to us regularly. And uh, I, th- I think it, it instilled the idea of story into my head at a very early age. And, and, and my mother was very good at encouraging imagination. What did your parents do, Mark? Um, my dad was uh, a banker, worked in, in savings, savings and loan and as a bank manager. And uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, um, but she was the she had an artsy, craftsy kind of streak. Um, so she always had a business working out of the home. She she worked several years. She ran an upholstery business out of the basement. So now, did she personally do the work, or she had people come in to do it? Because basically, she was an entrepreneur. Oh, so she, she did. She did the she did the work herself, and oh. uh, my brother and I. We're, we're employed as the furniture movers. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrific. That oh. was my first job. It didn't pay well. <laughs> it didn't pay well, but that's terrific. But I'm sure your mother appreciated your help. Oh, yeah. So now, as you were growing up, how did you seed your journalism career? What, what really transpired? Um, you mentioned about uh, story ideas going through your head. What else was going on? Did you start to write at an early age? Did you start to tell stories? How did it all evolve? We want to walk through your road with you. Okay. Um, well, as I said, I had I had an older brother, and uh, my mother encouraged our creativity. My older brother was was good at drawing and doodling. Um, and and I don't know if it's if it was to pick something that he didn't do or or what, but I I remember from a very early like first grade, I started making up stories. You're writing stories for school projects. Um, it, it's something that 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 really captured me. It, it, if there was a way, it, it was a way a t- teachers could use to to spur me um, to show interest in my work is to kind of pose the assignments as storytelling. Um, and I was always a very big reader from from the minute I, i'm I'm the type of kid who would show up at baseball practice and I'd sit in right field because of course that's where I always played and uh, I'd be cross legged and reading a book and the ball would drop next to me. <laughs> Did you daydream a lot when you were in class thinking about your story ideas? <laughs> um I didn't daydream so much, but I was a very, I had an active mind. I had this ability that I could listen to what was going on in class and at the same time disrupt my neighbors. Um, the, the, the smarter teachers that I had realized that if they could give me something to do with my hands, to keep my hands occupied, I wouldn't bother the, the children sitting next to me. Ah, so you were a mischievous child then. Uh, I probably had a streak of that, yes. Okay, all right. Going further, uh, let's fast forward you uh, to college. After you were graduated from college, were you majored in print journalism with uh, concentrated studies in English and theater arts? What was your first job, and how did you get it? Well, my first job actually was at the, the end of end of my college career um i uh I, I got an internship with cincinnati magazine um for one summer and um how did you arrange the internship 
you know, I, I, I went out and actively sought for internships. I was looking for something um, that that I could do near where my parents lived so I wouldn't have to worry about about rent and that kind of thing. Um, and, and I I had it in my mind that I really liked magazine journalism because it, it, it I liked feature writing because it gave you a little bit a little bit more leeway to tell a story. Um, Do you remember how you pitched yourself to get that first internship? How I pitched myself? Um, you know, I, I think it, I pitched myself as diligent. I think I, uh, I, I think I was upfront about, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience, but I have worked on the college paper. I, I have a real joy of writing, and I will write whatever assignment you give me. Um, the the woman who hired me was a had a reputation for being a having a uh, being a particularly tough editor in Cincinnati. Her name was Lilia Brady. Um, so when I when I got that job, uh, I was I was working with one of the best in the city. So now you had the internship, and did that lead to a full time position, or you subsequently went on to something else? Oh yes, I, um, I I I did the internship for the summer, and uh, Lilia, who who was a particularly stern judge, particularly of interns, um, liked my work. And so after I finished the the internship, which was non-paying, um, she would bring me in to do to do paid assignments or or to write some smaller stories for the magazine. And I waited. I, I did the. Uh, the cliche of waiting tables for almost a year. Um, All right, so your serious full-time job first was a waiter. Am I correct, Mark? Correct, correct. And I, okay. and, you, and you know what? I, I loved waiting tables, and I, and I think what I've learned is no matter what job I do, I pick up skills that apply to that can apply to other professions that transfer really well, and. Just How did the, you do that with with the waiting? What what did you pick up from doing the waiting? Uh, the ability to to just talk to people, to to speak to strangers. It was this was a, a really nice restaurant. It catered to a, a wealthy clientele, which was in my it wasn't a, a, a type of person I had had a lot of exposure to in my life. Um, I picked up knowledge about food and wine. And you know, so later in my career, I've ended up writing about food and wine. So um, that was the beginning of that education. It sounds like you're a sponge soaking things up. <laughs> I I think that's an accurate description. Good. If it sparks my interest, I I want to devour it. I want to find out more. So tell us how your mentor helped you get your first serious position. Okay, so Lilia, um, there were there was another freelance writer who who worked with Lilia at Cincinnati Magazine, and uh, her name is Jean Peck. She was also the editor of the alumni magazine at the University of Cincinnati, and um, so Jean had a position open in her shop. And Lilia said, "I've got this. I've, I've got this young kid for you. I think he would be great." And um, Lilia told me that the job was available, encouraged me to apply. I applied. I got the interview. 
and it's interesting because one of the things that Jean said to me in the interview, um, she said, I had to interview you because Lilia likes you and Lilia doesn't like anybody. <laughs> Which was a nice thing to hear. It's terrific. So now, what did you share with her at the interview? Do you remember what kinds of things you talked about? And how did you really, what I call, package yourself to pitch? So that the next step was that you received an offer from her. Well, I think one of the things that, that, that got Jean's attention about me, in addition to Lilia's recommendation, um, with my resume, I, since I, I didn't have a lot of clips to include, I didn't have a lot, a lot of experience uh, to point to, I did include a, a one-page kind of biography of myself, and I, I discussed kind of what my interests were, what I like to do in my spare time. And I mentioned a, a love of 18th century British literature, and that ended up connecting with Jean, who was doing the hiring, because that was also something that interested her. And she said it's very – she told me subsequently that um, it, it was important to her that the, the person she hired to write was also a reader. She said she had seen – seen other resumes, talked to other candidates, and when she would ask them, you know, what kinds of things do you read, and they would say, oh, I really don't read that much, or it set me apart. It set you apart. It also gave you a personal brand, and what you did ultimately was you stopped Jean from continuing to shop. She no longer needed to interview any more candidates because she saw you as the right fit. I have to say that, that looking back on that interview, um, I realized that, that after we had started our discussion, she, she was rooting for me. She, she wanted me to, to be the successful candidate, I could tell. Well, because the chemistry must have been right between you, both of you as well. So how long were you with Jean? And how did you develop your skills there? Well, when Jean hired me, she said, I'm looking for someone who is not going to be satisfied with this job in the long term. She, this was in the mid-'80s, so the, um, the employment market, oddly, was, was a little bit like it is now. Um, but she said, she said, there's not a lot of room to grow because – I'm in this. I don't plan on going anywhere. My associate editor has an eight-year-old son, and she's playing, planning on staying here until he finishes college because University of Cincinnati has tuition remission. Um, so she told me up front, "I want somebody who's going to do this job and learn in this job, and then be eager to find the next thing." Um, so she made it clear that it was not a long-term position. Correct. Basically, she was going to be grooming you, it sounds as if. Am I correct, Mark? That she was, yes. yes. She saw herself as grooming you. I think that's another reason why she was very particular as to selecting the right person, because why would she invest a lot of herself in someone that she didn't think would be a successful journalist in relation to what she viewed as her standards? And she gave me... She gave me a lot of encouragement. She gave me a lot of of ability 
challenging assignments, assignments that were maybe right outside of my reach or maybe what I thought were right outside of my reach. Can you remember some of those? Um, I remember I I, um, was assigned to interview Suzanne Farrell, um, who was one of George Balanchine's ballerinas. Um, In fact, that his his main ballerina, and I wasn't quite sure who she was, but I was I was aware enough to be a little bit afraid. So I did a lot of research, and and it's an assignment that usually would have gone to a a writer, maybe a more seasoned writer. Um, When another department came to us and said we we want a newsletter um, for our department, and we really need somebody to do this for us. Um, which is an assignment that would usually go to someone with more experience. Gene asked me if I was interested and offered me, said, if you, if you want to do this, we'll, we'll help you do it, but, but I want you to take the lead. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll show you the, the parameters, but I want you to take the lead and run with this. And so how did both of these projects turn out? Um, for the, the one two, where you interviewed the ballerina and then this next project that you just described? For the Susan Farrell story, I, I, uh, I remember one of my, my opening question was, um, it was a story from her childhood about how she and a friend would dance with the, dance with the uh, chairs in her mother's living room and they would pretend that, he w- that the chair was the uh, primary male dancer at the time. And um, I, so I, I brought this story up and, and, and based a question on that, and it, and it immediately put her at ease. Um, I remember her response was, how did you know that she smiled uh, at the memory and said, how did you find out that story? How did you find that story? And it helped the rest of the interview flow very easily. And I, and I think Suzanne Farrell is someone who had a reputation of being a little closed off, a, a little hard to get to talk to. I think it was part of, of one of the things that made her such a great balancing ballerina is that, that he was able to, to layer his vision onto her and she, could, and she could display that. So you successfully reached her, obviously, by knowing so, what yes. she did as a child. I so did. Then, so then how did Jean respond to that? To the to um, what to the quality of what you had written in terms of this interview, I I got a prime spot in the magazine with that story. In fact, ah. that, that story became uh, one of the centerpieces of my clip file. Now for the other for the for the newsletter, um, I actually got to to kind of pound that out, and I remember I did it for the admissions department, and one of my ideas uh, for this. For this newsletter, they said, well, we, we have to share important information with incoming students, with applicants, with people um, you know, interested in the, in the school, and uh, how are you going to do that in a creative way that would appeal to a young audience? And I developed this character, um, the UC Advice Lady. And the, the UC Advice Lady, I had, a, I had an image of her in my head, and she had a nice... I guess how I would describe her as as a stern librarian type who ah. who if you looked again you could see a twinkle in her eye. 
Okay, so you created this character, and then what did you do with the character? Well, the I, I talked to an illustrator who who did did a version of her that we could run, and uh, so we had kind of the basic illustration of her, and we would do different things to her. She'd have a a pencil sticking out of her hair. One time we put her in a football helmet, or we just do little things to her that that adapted to the sto- to the uh, advice. But what what would happen is people would students um, would write in and ask their questions about the University of Cincinnati or what do I do once I get there? And um, she was helpful. She was she was helpful. She was stern. She had a, a she always had a kind word to say though. Um, and I was excited because this is the the first time that I had kind of created a character like this, and it was very personal to me. And it was also funny because it was so different from who I was. You know, I so was no, 20... but nobody knew that you were that character then. No, no one they knew. They thought who it was the a woman that was, was the advice lady, right? Okay, <laughs> all right. I know we're going to hear more about that later. Uh, let's look at what did Jean do. After you had been there a year or two years, how long were you there when she decided it was time to push you out of the nest? <laughs> well, she had, uh, as I said, she told me up front, I don't want someone who's going to be in here in this position long. Yeah, and and it's, at one point she, I guess maybe two and a half, three years into it, um, she started asking me questions. I remember um, whether I was satisfied in my situation. Was I was I kind of getting bored with the assignments? Um, in fact, I think it's it's similar to um, something you mentioned in Win Without Competing, where you talk about probing. Um, and in retrospect, now I know what she was doing. She was probing to see if this was still a right fit job for me. Um, because she was hoping that it would not be because she right. knew it was time for you to move on because right. it was an entry-level position, and obviously you were growing above and beyond it. So she encouraged me to, to start she, – she would encourage me to start looking and started pointing me toward things. Um, the Chronicle of Higher Education, for instance, the, the one ads there, I remember she, she pointed out to me I, – I don't know if you're aware, Mark, but we have this – this publication, you know, that I had been using for other research, but she said, I want to pay attention to the classifieds in the back and just kind of dream about what kind of job you want to do next. So it wasn't telling me to get out, but it was inspiring me to see what a future me might be. And how I, long um, had you been there when she started uh, probing away? I'm sorry? How long had you been working with her when she started to probe away? I'd say about about three years, about okay. three, yeah, three, three and a half years, I think. And, and then what um, happened next? Cause well, I, I I took her advice. I started doing, uh, I started looking at different jobs. I remember specifically, I was thinking about, okay, what what do I want to do next? Do I want to stay in Cincinnati? Do I, what kind of job do I want? And I remember specifically, I, I just started applying for for any position as practice to get my resume together to um remind myself how to write a good cover letter uh i remember there was a job in walla walla washington i remember there was a job in sewanee tennessee um 
and I applied for them, but I knew that that probably wasn't the place for me. I, I think I realized that um, I didn't want to stay in Cincinnati because the the area where I grew up is an area where where people's grandparents had lived in the same house that they lived in, and I wanted to see something else of the world. I wanted to see what other places were like. So I found this this one ad at UCLA, and I had photocopied it and the photocopy sat on my desk and it sat on my desk and one day Jean walked by and she looked at it and she said are you going to apply for this job or am I going to fire you <laughs> I love I love this Jean is really a delight um, did you subsequently stay in touch with her after you left your position Mark <laughs> in fact uh, last August I stayed with uh, with Jean and her husband in Portland Maine Oh, my, all these years, and you've still been friends. It's wonderful. I have to say that was a very nurturing environment, that that first job. I I was close with Jean and my my other coworker, my other mentor there, Debbie Rieselman, um, is still like a sister to me. Um, She spends holidays at my parents' house in Cincinnati, whether I'm there or not, so... So now trace the path. How did you actually get to UCLA? You you applied. What happened next? <laughs> what happened next is I came up with a mountain of excuses of why I couldn't do it and why I was not going to succeed in this uh, ah. in this application process. Um, do you remember what the title of the position was? I believe it was publications manager. Okay. Um, but I, when Jean asked me, are you going to apply for the job, it's because the, the ad had been sitting there, and she knew that I hadn't yet. <clears throat> so I, I, I came up with my first barrier, my first artificial barrier, which was, well, the, the applications are due you know, in, in a couple of days, so there's no way I can get my resume there in time. And Jean said, well, you know, there's a fax number there. We have a fax machine. And I said, well... But this is when the day the days when when fax machines had those those long rolls and it would spit out that curled paper and right. I said well that's you know that's not how I want my resume to arrive at UCLA I want it to be on nice paper and she said just stop making excuses so it arrives on curled paper you send a hard copy along but just just do it stop making excuses and do it and so I did it <laughs> I took her advice I. Went ahead and faxed my resume. I worked on it. You know, I had worked on the cover letter. Um, and about a week and a half later, I had gotten home from work. I got a phone call, and it was UCLA um, interested in conducting a phone interview with me. About, Were you shocked I, when you got the phone call? Oh, yes. It, it wasn't expected, and I... I I don't know, I was doing housework or something, I remember, because I kind of had to drop everything and sit down and say, okay, I'm going to talk now. I need to to do those right things. I need to kind of sit where I can see a mirror and make sure that I have a good expression on my face while I'm talking and get my resume in front of me so I can refer to it. Um, In fact, one of the clips, one of my my showpiece clip was um, the story, uh, the interview with Suzanne Farrell, and there was another story that I wrote. Um, it was about how pharmacists in the, you know, in the future, in the 90s, 
would start taking over some of the duties um, from doctors, and I started out with an imaginary, uh, kind of a, an imaginary what if, and, it, and the the story went: you went to your you go to your doctor, your doctor examines you, and but she suggests that you talk to your pharmacy about what or your pharmacist about what comes next, and. Uh, I guess the fact that in 1990 I had made this imaginary doctor a woman also impressed UCLA that I hadn't automatically defaulted that the doctor would be a man. Terrific. So now what transpired during the phone interview? What did you discuss? What were they really trying to figure out? Did they know exactly the of the right fit person, or were they just sort of fishing? Uh, were they going to then interview lots of people? What sense did you get? Well, I remember we had some discussion of, of my skills. Um, uh, Doug, Doug Reese was, was the hiring manager then. He had mentioned the story. He said that, you know, we, we want somebody who, who is thinking a little different and who is aware of of, of those kinds of issues. So he specifically mentioned the uh, the story with the pharmacist, um, and, and that that impressed him. Um, but the conversation veered off, and we and again, it's funny. He asked me what I was reading at the time, and so I, I talked about. Um, I, I believe I was reading David Levitt's Lost Language of Cranes at the time, and it. it Again, it turned into a conversation of what I was reading and, and the type of literature that, that interested me. And, um, you know, I was, I was lucky again that this was uh, the, the hiring manager knew the book that I was talking about and, you know, respected the book that I was talking about and the, the kinds of literature that I was reading. So about two weeks later, I was flying out to Los Angeles uh, to interview on, on the UCLA campus. I uh, had an interview there with, I think it was five people, and uh, I was very nervous. They put me in this, we, we were interviewing in a, there were couches, we were in a kind of a lounge where we were interviewing, and I either had to sit back in the couch, which I sank down in, or I had to kind of perch on the edge. I remember sitting down in that chair and trying to find the the, the best way to present myself in well, that that's really situation. important. Yeah, no, no. I'm glad that you're aware about how you how you presented yourself in the manner in which you were sitting was very important because it is very important. So it's it's amazing how you were aware of so many things at a young age. I uh, I, I, I subsequently found out that the hiring manager would kind of purposely do some things like that in interviews. There was another interview where he had kind of redirected lights so that all the lights in the room were subtly, but they were all hitting the candidate because he wanted to see what um, kind of how people would react. In fact, the night before my interview, Doug said, meet me at the Alumni Association building. We'll, you know, we'll go out for dinner. And um, he took me to... A, a Chinese restaurant in the village, and said, "Why don't you order for both of us?" And uh, I, I remember being taken off guard and thought, "Well, that's that's odd. I I don't know anything about this person." So I had to think quickly and say, "Okay, we'll order. You know, 
one chicken dish, one vegetarian dish because I'm in California and, and that may be an issue, and and one spicy dish and one mild dish. I remember this thought process, okay, how do how am I going to do this? So there's pro, so there's a high likelihood that no matter what he wants, there's probably something there he can or will eat. And Doug told me later, he said, yeah, I, I wanted to see what your reaction would be. I wanted to see how you would react in, in you know, in a situation like that. Well, he wanted to see if you could take charge. He gave you an opportunity to take charge, and you took charge, because obviously you didn't start in discussing it with him. Am I correct, Mark? Correct. Yeah, so you just took charge. He wanted because he was fast-forwarding to if, in fact, he would hire you, and he gave you an assignment, would he need to discuss the assignment to death, or could you take the ball and run with it? So that was a test. And obviously, you scored an A plus here. <laughs> I think the, it's terrific. It's a very interesting test. At the uh, after, I guess about two weeks after I flew to Los Angeles, I got the call, and it was funny because I was talking to Gene back in Cincinnati, and I was to the point where I had been on pins and needles, and I said, you know. Obviously, they don't want me. It's taken, it's taken so long. Obviously, they don't want me. I'm just going to call, and I'm going to tell them, you know, never mind. Take my name out of it. And, you know, it was, about, it was about me feeling unwanted, I guess, you know, about me being a little um, insecure about what was happening. And Well, that's funny... a common feeling at all ages, Mark. <laughs> um, yeah, because people make the erroneous assumption that if you have to wait many weeks, the employer isn't interested. That's incorrect because you don't really know what the cause of the waiting is. Could be right. a budgetary issue. Could be that the decision maker wasn't available to make the final decision. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons so that you should feel comfortable that this is just normal for people to feel this way. So then what happened next? Well, what did Jean say? She probably told you it was nonsense. She said just, exactly. She said, it's nonsense. Right. Stop being a baby. Just be patient. Um, because she, what probably I, what gave, I, she probably gave a reference to them. Exactly. What I, what I found out later is that she had already spoken with Doug, and Doug had already said, I'm going to offer him the job. I just need to get final confirmation from my supervisor before I can actually make the offer. So I'm correct, and I didn't even know that that was the story. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah, no, it's a common, it's a common situation. So it, it's, now, a, it, it's a really dangerous, what I found is it's really dangerous when you start trying to assign motive um, to, to someone when you're 3,000 miles away and don't know them. So you must That's have been never so, a good plan. Yeah, well, you must have been absolutely thrilled. Um, now, you started at UCLA in 1991, and you've made many contributions, including um, you are the founding editor of three publications, the UCLA Alumni Magazine, the Connect at UCLA e-newsletter, and the UCLA Alumni Network Newsletter. Share with us your UCLA career story, the challenges you faced, and how you handled them. The listeners can't wait to hear about the pretzel effect. <laughs> um, well, 
the interesting thing is I was hired well, I was hired to be a halftime writer, a halftime graphic designer. That was the description. Um, uh, desktop publishing was was the newest thing, and uh, I knew I knew enough from school to do basic kind of newspaper layout. I knew the, those principles, and I had learned. I had taught myself at University of Cincinnati to um, to use the the desktop publishing software and that is what made me uh, an attractive can one of the things that really made me an attractive candidate at at UCLA so my job for the first i think 3 years 3 years was to um write and edit um a publication uh, a, a a tabloid publication and um <clears throat> After a couple of years into this, I, I really realized that my limitations as a as a graphic designer. And I remember going to my boss, and we were kind of going back and forth. How do we fix this? What you know, the, the newsletter is it just looks a little dated. It looks, and uh, I had to have the courage to say, you know, I know how to use the software, but that doesn't make me a designer. And I think that we could probably do a better job with this if if we hired somebody who had the skill or if we had some freelance money. So um, I had to admit <clears throat> that, that, you know, that's a weakness of mine and somebody else can do it better. Well, I think it's good that you recognize that. After all, they didn't hire you as a graphic designer. It sounds like they thought, I guess, that you were able to do what they would give you, apparently. And it was the, the, the first time the first time that my job morphed and i think that that's that's the the key to why i've been at uh the the UCLA alumni association for so long and why like any job it's had its ups and downs and there have been some some periods of that employment that have been very challenging for me um but every three to four years my job changes my title seems to change the people I work with uh, sometimes change. My, um, luckily, my my salary has also continued to change um, in a positive direction. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, so now, when a challenging situation occurs, what do you do uh, to handle that? I know that we talked about uh, community involvement. And how has that played a part in your life and helped you with the pretzel effect? Um, I think probably the best example is we had some we had some funding challenges at the association. Some some a, a revenue stream that we had dried up. Um, at the same time, there was there was some movement on campus. I, I had founded a the magazine for the alumni association and done it for about 10 years but there was you know from 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 the chancellor he was kind of looking at what the university was sending out and and he saw that there was it would be better if we sent out one magazine as opposed to several magazines um to our audience that that happened simultaneously with some revenue drying up so i had spent 10 years 
developing a, a self-image um, based on I'm a magazine editor. That's what I that's what I do. That's who I am. Defining myself as as that job. So you and, were one in the. You saw yourself as one and the same. You right. were the magazine editor, and that was your identity. Right. Okay. And um, so when that when when things changed, you know, differences in funding, differences in staffing, you know, my boss came to me and said, "This is this is going away, but don't worry, you're still valuable to us, and we, you know, there are other things we need you to do." Um, but I was crushed because because I felt like the I felt like who I was had gone away, um, and I was going through you know this period where I wasn't I wasn't feeling very happy at work. Um, what was happening is things were changing, like ha- like happens in, to all of us in the workplace, and I was resistant to that change. Um, Part of the way that I overcame that is I started looking in my my community involvements. I started looking for opportunities to learn new things, and there was a there was a leadership development program offered um, by the Southwest California Synod, which is a, a part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. And I signed up for this two-year program because I thought, you know, well maybe there's something I can learn here, you know, that that will that will feed a need in me that, that I'm not necessarily getting in my workplace right now. And so how did that work out? How did that help you to develop yourself further and basically disassociate yourself so that you didn't see yourself as only the magazine editor-in-chief? Well, I think what it did is is – well, first place at work, you know, part of me being a magazine editor, I had I had put a lot of self worth in 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 what that was, and and that self worth with the with that position gone turned more into ego, I think. Um, so I was I think I was a, a little bit difficult to deal with at work for for a period there, as, as I kind of adjusted, and I realized through this leadership program that that a good deal of leadership is is based in service that if you approach a leader as, a leadership position as i'm going to organize i'm going to tell these people what to do these people are going to do my will um, it's often less successful than you than if you approach the job and say i'm here to be of service to this organization i'm here um, to help help us all do something different that the, the leadership is service and it helped me see what I was doing um, in my in my private life in a different way it helped me subsequently I, I got on to the board of directors for the for the synod and I started exploring different ha- having different opportunities to learn than I necessarily had in the workplace and what this did was in the workplace it allowed me to be humble and then start looking at my skills and saying, wait a minute, you know, it wasn't, it was never about me being a magazine editor. It was about me being a good writer. It was about me being a good teacher to some of my, my peers and some of the newer employees. Um, and those are skills that can be redeployed in any manner of ways. One of those might be as a magazine editor, but there are lots of other ways that I could be valuable to the organization and suddenly I wasn't scared of the change. 
so that all of a sudden you could view it objectively. You didn't take it personally anymore. Right. And I say I say suddenly, but I have to correct that and say gradually I realized that there was nothing to be afraid of in the change. Um, you know, the the organization was telling me I was still valuable, and and we may take a while to figure out, you know, what it is that you're best at. And, you know, the, the, the tasks that I was being assigned, some of them I liked, some of them I didn't, but they trusted me to be able to to carry those out and to help uh, allow me to shape what I did next. <laughs> During the time that you described yourself as being a little difficult, um, were you uh, concerned that this would become a problem or you knew that they understood that you were evolving? Hmm. I, I think it would, I would have to say there was a little bit of both. Okay. You know, the, there was part of me that 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 said, "Is it?" There was part of me that just wanted to flee the situation. Um, there was part of me that wanted to fix the situation. Um, there was part of me that wanted to go back and say, "No, no, no. Let's let's go back to the way we did things two years ago." Because because I'm comfortable with that. I understand that. Um. I like I think I was lucky that I was I was working with some supervisors who who kind of allowed me supervisors and peers I have to say who were patient with me until I did get back on my feet and say and and realize that you know this change wasn't threatening you know nobody was telling me I didn't have a job anymore and um and I have to say that that the organization because of I think because of what I was able to contribute before was good about helping me explore what came next. Well, that's why you're still there, I think, that they worked along with you. I think it's terrific. Mark? And it's it, it prepared me for, for what did come next, which was two years ago the organization got a new executive director, and um, Ralph Amos, who, who has a great vision for um, what alumni relations is in this country and what what alumni relations can do specifically at UCLA and how we can carry that that industry that mission forward in ways that that hasn't ways that haven't really been done in in, in this profession um, and I'm lucky that I had that opportunity to get comfortable with change a few years ago because there's a lot of change going on now <clears throat> and I'm actually able to coach some of my coworkers through this change now. Well, now you now you're the change maven. You're the change guru. It's terrific. I think it's really good because you learned how to handle it yourself and now you can teach others. Now, you're award an award-winning journalist who sets high standards for yourself. Which of your awards will you always remember and why? You alluded to the um, new role you played at Cincinnati, so I'm hoping you're going to talk about that. Um, the, the award that I think means the most to me, I got from the International Association of Business Communicators, and it was a first 
uh, it was a, a first place prize for uh, best column, best column in a publication, best columnist. And uh, it was for the UC advice lady. And I think it means so much to me is because she, she really was a character that I created. Um, she was a character that I created. She fulfilled the goal of, of, of what the institution was asking me to do, and she fulfilled it in a way that was very different from anything that they had, had expected. Um, and it was just amusing to actually accept the award because we were in a, 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 one of a gorgeous old theater in, in downtown Cincinnati where they presented the awards and they, they, you know, just like the Oscars, they did the whole thing. Here are the, here are the nominees, you know, and the winner is UC Advice Lady. And um, they had a picture, they, they had a, a, a big projector, so you could actually see the illustration of the UC, Advi UC Advice Lady. And uh, so they announced that it's the UC Advice Lady, and up pops this 26-year-old kid, <laughs> this 26-year-old oh, man. Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous. So they, they, their mouth and the whole, just the, the whole audience just roared as I got up to accept that award. Oh, I think you must have been the hit of the evening. <laughs> I think it's fabulous. <laughs> do they actually give you a, a plaque, or or what did they give you? Yes, I got a plaque. You I got, got a, a plaque. plaque. Now, you have a broad range of talents, including music. How did you qualify to become the music columnist for the national news magazine, The Advocate, and what kind of music did you review? Well, I've always had uh, an interest in music going back to school. Uh, for a brief time, when I was when I was working at, at Cincinnati Magazine, in fact, and, and the University of Cincinnati, I was a singer in a you know a bar band. It was a, a new wave kind of band. We we did not very good music. Um, but it was a great experience, it was, and I was, I was there a lot. I heard a lot of of, of music um, by independent bands, unsigned bands, and it really just sparked uh, an interest in me, but also uh, an admiration and a respect for these these kids who I'm sure, you know, their parents all told them, "Don't do this. You got to have a day job," you know, and they're out there, they're out there doing the work. Um, so I had always had a love of independent music, and Cincinnati has a long history of having a, an, an interesting independent music scene. Um, when I came out to California, I, you know, I had friends who were editors, and I had a friend who was the, the, the arts and entertainment editor at The Advocate. And one of the things they would do each year is they would, once or twice a year, they would do a column that focused on independent music. And I would read the column, and I would always think, I can do better, or not even necessarily I can do better, but they can find um, more quality people to feature. Uh, and so I <clears throat> let him know, in, in a friendly way, let him know. And uh, just, You pitched uh, yourself again, Mark. When, when, uh, so when we were, he was coming up on that assignment after, I, the, the, I think, twice I had registered my feelings, uh, kind of said, look, you know, there's better stuff. Let me help you. Let me help you the next time. 
And uh, he said, you know what, you're not going to, after I've done that twice, the next time the assignment came up, he said, you know, you're not going to complain this time because this time you're going to do the work. And he, he let me try out the assignment. Um, I had and a great time. And how did that work out? I had a great time. You know, I, I explored I explored what, what had come into the office, but I also went out and started looking for music that, that fit with the editorial mission of the magazine, um, music that, that, you know, was had quality packaging that 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 you could tell the musician had spent some time thinking about the cover and you know actually recording in a studio so that the quality of the sound was good you know in addition to just just being good music you could tell it was it I looked for people who were really putting their heart and their talent in, into the product and um had a, had a great time going out and looking for for good music to include um, I did the first column, and uh, my my editor, my friend who was the arts and entertainment editor, got a lot of positive feedback from his boss, and um, so that that turned into a regular a regular gig. So, how did you figure out? In other words, what was the blueprint of the right fit person to write about in your column? What what were the specs? Well. As I said, I wanted to. I, I looked for, I looked for quality music, but I looked for, for other things. The, the things that showed that the musician was really thinking about the entire final product. You know, so how how good was the quality of the recording? How, you know, how good was the cover shoot? Um, how sometimes how good the the, the the cover letter? There were musicians who contacted me. Um, I went out on the web with a, as a great research tool for this kind of thing, and I went out looking for looking for musicians. And I'd hear something, and you know, contact them and say, "Hey, do you have do you have something new that you're working on that that you'd like to share with me?" Um, and I think another rule I made for myself is that there's so much independent music out there. Um, there's no need to to badmouth somebody's work. I mean, if you're if you're Picking up a music public, a general interest music publication, and somebody wants to know, is the new Madonna album good or bad? Should I buy it or not? That's one thing, and you know, fine, you can give Madonna a pan, and it's no big deal. But for this, there was limited space, there was limited limited ink, and I thought, if it's if it's not quality music, if it's not quality product, I don't have to mention it. Rather than 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 trash someone's efforts, I'd rather just raise up, lift up. To visibility, the people who I thought deserved the visibility. Um, so it, it actually allowed me to to be more of a a, a nice a nice columnist, a nice uh, a nice crit a nice critic, right? Rather than right. a negative critic. It, it wasn't right. important to you know if my reaction was I don't like your music, I, I I think it's trash. It wasn't necessary for me to say that in print. I would just move on to someone who. You know, deserve the attention. What advice do you have for our listeners who are unhappy at work? I think I think a lot of it is is look at yourself, look at yourself, and in your work situation, um, is there is this job. Is this job what you what you desire in a job? 
Um, is there a way to, to change the position um, that better fits your needs? Um, you know, if not, it may be time to go. Um, or maybe what you're feeling what you're feeling uncomfortable about in your position, is it really about your position or is it about the fact that there's change? You know, is it about, is about your, your fear that, that the job is going to go away or your fear that the familiarity of your job is going to go away? Um, that you're uncomfortable with the change concept. Right, right. Um, and and if, it's, if you find that it's really just about things are changing and, and I'm not sure how to do what comes next, you know, just let go because no, chances are nobody knows how to do what comes next. Chances are, you know, possibly even your supervisor who is, who is the one who's instituting the change isn't quite sure what's going to come next. You know, he or she is striving for something and is not quite sure how you're going to get there. So, so look at how you can be part of that plan. Look at, you know, that's the time of opportunity because – when, when we're not quite sure how to, how to organizationally how we're going to move the, the organization forward, it's a great time to say, okay, what is it that I want to do, and how does that contribute to this change? I think it's beautifully said because quite often people become fearful rather than seeing it as an opportunity, welcoming it, and working with it rather than running away from it. And I believe me, I've tried. I've tried both, <laughs> and, I, and I know which one has worked and which one hasn't. Well, but you we know, know it's even right. even with what's going on in our economy, if you look at, you know, we're hearing, oh, it's the worst time since the depression. It's, all state insurance was founded during the depression. Um, my my partner is a novelist and is looking at selling the film rights to a book, and was worried about. You know, was worried about the the company that was interested. Did a little research and realized that this company was founded in the late 80s, early 90s, which is when film companies were going bust right and left. Orion closed down, TriStar closed down, and thought, well, you know, these people in a in a bad economy figured out how to create a new film company and make it work. They're they're exactly the people I want to work with. Well, Mark, it has just been an absolute delight. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you did as well. I definitely did. I thank you very much for, for asking me to do this. It, well, it, it scared me, which is why I said yes. <laughs> well, that's okay. Um, you're at the other end. You're the person who's always arranging things for others to be interviewed, I'm sure, <laughs> over the years. So that makes good sense why you were uncomfortable but it worked out beautifully and i really appreciate your sharing your innermost thoughts and feelings with us today and i hope that you come back soon thank you thank you thank you please join me again next wednesday april 1st at 5 p.m pacific daylight time the Anne Edwards brand of celebrity biography. My guest will be Anne Edwards, Pulitzer Prize nominee for her biography, Early Reagan, an internationally best-selling biographer of Judy Garland, Vivian Lee, Catherine Hepburn, and Margaret Mitchell, author of Gone with the Wind. 
a native of Los Angeles. She lived for several decades in Great Britain, where her biographies of Queen Mary, the present Queen's grandmother, Diana, Princess of Wales, Wallace, Duchess of Windsor, and royal sisters Elizabeth I and Princess Margaret are seminal books. Edwards will share memories of her early career as a child performer and her marriage to her third and present husband, Stephen Citron. Pianist, composer, noted author of books on the musical theater and co-author with Edwards on a memoir and a musical. The Wrong Fit, Fix It or Flee. Our discussion today has helped us, I believe, learn more about how we can work with a situation in which the fit may not be exactly right. About three or four years ago, I introduced my workshop, The Wrong Fit, Fix It or Flee, to the National Society of Hispanic MBAs. Little did I know that many of the attendees would have work-related health problems. If you are suffering in a wrong fit job, please do contact me and let's arrange for you to attend the Wrong Fit Fix It or Flee seminar on the west side of Los Angeles. You can reach me at 310-441-5305 to arrange a time to speak with me or email me directly at drbarro, that's Dr. Barrow, at winwithoutcompeting.com. Moving your career forward. More than 12 million people are currently unemployed. Every minute, 15 people are losing their jobs. Those who blast their resumes from Burbank to Bombay could remain unemployed for many years because the competition mindset won't work in today's economic environment. Over and over, as the Sparrow Global Search Inc. hear the same story, I emailed 100, 300, and even 600 resumes hoping to get interviews. The result is either no response or perhaps a few interviews. The solution is simple. The job seeker must use my right fit method, which is a unique set of strategies to identify the right fit job to convince the employer to interview you and hire you as the one right fit candidate at the salary that you want. The goal is to stop the employer from wanting to interview other people, and I refer to it as stop the employer from shopping. To learn more about my right fit method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com and read excerpts from Win, which was nominated for a Business Book Award. To purchase Win, click on the Buy page and select the Right Fit Bookseller for you. Interested in finding out about my nationwide coaching services conducted by phone? Visit drbarro.com, that's drbarrow.com, or winwithoutcompeting.com. To arrange a time to speak with me directly, call 310-441-5305. 
310-441-5305. Master the Right Fit Method and hear your high Saturday or Sunday afternoon seminars on the west side of Los Angeles. To find out more, please email me or call me directly. Space is limited, currently selecting participants for May and June. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, remember this trigger tip. It's all up to you to change your career and your life. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, and founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.